So I was saying in, in last service when Christy was doing an announcement, she said, the hike's three miles. And I'm like thinking, well, three miles, is that three miles each way? So it's six miles or it's 1.5 each way. I was like, well, that's not really a, a tough hike if it's 1.5. If it was six miles, I'd be like, no, I don't think so. I mean, because my least favorite things in the world, well, it's probably backpacking because it combines my two least favorite activities, which is walking and camping. But if you would like to, yeah, right? <laughs> Any one of those. Uh, I have one thing before we start today, and that is uh, we have a, a young kid, uh, and his name is Chris, and Chris was hit by a car on Friday, and they flew him down to cottage. He's actually doing okay, but if you would just keep him in your prayers, uh, if, you, if you pray, if you don't start, uh, and just pray, pray for Chris, and that he would continue to heal, and things would just be really well with him when they bring him back home. Uh, it kind of freaked a lot of people out on Friday when it happened, and a lot of people started praying, and I thought, I'm just going to make all of you pray for it as well, because that would just be amazing. So if you are newer to Element, on all the communion tables throughout the room, there are Bibles, and if you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one, but you can't give it back, so then it's just yours forever, because we can't clean paper during COVID rules and things like that. Uh, There are also sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room, so you can grab one of those if you don't have one, but if you have a smart device, you can download this app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events in Uversion. If you're in our local area, you'll come up by GPS in that smart device. If not, type in the zip code 93455, and we'll come up that way, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Uh, This is Numbers 21, verse 9. And it says, So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. I know, really weird verse. We're going to talk about that. Let's pray. Uh, Father, this morning, I ask that you would touch us and teach us so that we would learn uh, what you are saying and the provision that you have provided, and we would live in that provision by trusting you. We also do lift up Chris, that you would continue to heal him, and that you would bring him back home safely. Again, that you would teach people how to drive and kids not to run the street and all those things, but you above all would simply be glorified by how we as a people live and honor and love you. So teach us this morning in that vein. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing this series called The Greatest Story Ever Retold. This is the last week in the series. Well, except for Father's Day, we're going to do just this little different kind of thing about it. But The Greatest Story Ever Retold is different things in the scriptures that maybe you've read or seen, but we're looking at it from a little different perspective so we can understand it better. Uh, Last week, we talked about this story where Moses gets water, or God gives water from a rock in the desert as part of the Exodus story when the Israelites are uh, dying from dehydration. And it seems that when we get to today is not something a lot of people have seen because it actually comes later in that narrative when they're wandering around in that desert. And I don't know why because it's one of the craziest stories I think in the Old Testament. But what I want to do before we hear what we talk about today is just read those last verses we talked about last week because it really sets up what's happening again with the Israelites. In Exodus 17, 7 it says, he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And Because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Uh, Massa means testing. Meribah means quarreling. And it's what the Israelites did. Even after they get all these daily miracles by God, they still quarrel and they still test God. And this is what leads to into what we're going to talk about today, which is really a story of uh, snakes and salvation. If you have a Bible, open to Numbers chapter 21. That is the fourth book in the Old Testament. 
And where it is talking about snakes and salvation, this is really a greater story about our healing and what needs to take place in our lives. Because we need to understand there is a sickness that every single one of us have that needs to be healed, and it's much deeper than physical issues. And I had all these great ideas of how I was going to break this out for you today in like a three-part sermon with the with this prep and the pre-op and post-op, making it like COVID and medicine, but it didn't work at all. So it's all my great ideas. They never work. So essentially what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to you about the condition that we see of the Israelite people in the text and the condition that we all have. Then I'm going to talk to you about different ways that we can hopefully recognize that condition in us. And then I want to talk about what God has done about that condition and what God, how God has brought us back to himself. So that's where we're going to go. Uh, Numbers 21, starting in verse 4, goes like this. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? So you see, same thing that happened last week. They're doing this again. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So apparently there is food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, I know, really weird story, but we're going to talk about how that is exactly like it. You may be thinking, I don't understand how that could be like me. It's going to be just like you. You're going to see in a minute. Uh, The children of Israel are going through the wilderness. They will be in this wilderness for upwards of 40 years. And they complain and grumble over and over and over. And here, they're whining about the food, which is this thing called manna. There's no food in the desert, so you're going to die. So what does God do? God sends manna every morning. It's a daily miracle, and they begin to detest it. It says, for there is no food no water and we loathe this worthless food so they're actually a food it's like your kids when they look in the fridge we got nothing to eat you're like there's tons of stuff in there to eat you just don't want what's in there that's the israelites and as a result these fiery serpents they come into the camp i actually heard one guy talk about this gave a sermon on it and he said the snakes were literally on fire it's very sensational they weren't on fire the fire refers to what would happen to you if they bit you uh, you got hot you inflamed flamed in your body raging fever insatiable thirst and finally death very unpleasant. I got my second COVID shot a week and a half ago, and the, the day after, my whole arm was like on fire. I'm like, I've been bit by the serpent in my arm. Now, what is funny is a lot of modern readers and, and the first-time hearers of the story think God is totally overreacting in what's taking place here. It's like, your kid complains about the mac and cheese, and you're like, that's it! To the rattlesnake pit with you! You just, I'm done with this. We think, why is God so disproportionate in what he does? I mean, maybe they were wrong in complaining, but seriously, this has got to be an overreaction. And there are some commentators who believe that as well, that speak about this. But I think if we look at the original language and what's taking place, it's not an overreaction. God is actually doing something. So we have to get over our perceived shock of what's taking place. So you look what the complaint actually is here. Uh, they're grumbling and complaining. And what they do, as I said, they detest God's daily provision over them. They hate the manna. So that manna was something God sent every day miraculously. It's this sweet resin that would be on the ground and they could make it into cakes or make it into bread or things like that. And it came down every single day. Every single day in this barren wilderness until they go into the promised land and then it stops. But every single day. So it's direct, miraculous, daily testimony to God's power and God's commitment to them. How many people today say things like, oh, I wish God would just show up and prove himself to me. God does this 
every single day, and they begin to detest it. At first, they were grateful. It's their lifeline. But now, again, they they don't want it. And what's going on in them is what goes on in every single one of us when we cease to be enthralled by the goodness of God, that God has given us so many things every day, and he is so good to us that we cease to even see the goodness and think he's not coming through for us. God, all of his grace for us, almost becomes normal and mundane in our lives. Now, this is what I mean. Studies are now showing that our culture is having irrationally high standards in a really bad way because we are so comfortable. We have everything that just kind of goes our way. So we spend all this time browsing social media. You have any question in the world, you go to the Google, and it tells you the answer. Like my wife and I watch a TV show, and we're like, who's that guy? I've seen him somewhere before. You ask the Google, boom, and that's where that person came from. Oh, yeah, I didn't like that show. I didn't like him. But, but you know, because you can ask the Google, we have all of these things, so our standards become irrationally high. And this is now being shown, uh, really, in the ways that people choose their mates and, and who they date. Uh, we have this guy in our gospel community, single guy, and he's on a couple dating apps. And so I ask him, so what does this mean? Swipe right, swipe, I know I'm old, okay? Just ugh. swipe right, swipe. Which, which one is the good way? And he goes, well, it's the good way this way if, if I don't want them, or they're a good way this way if I do want them. I don't get it. But anyway, you have all these things where you judge people on appearance just by what they look like, swipe right, swipe left. John Tierney wrote a column where he's talking to a friend of his who mentioned a recent date the guy went on. And it says, the guy says this, it started out great. She opened the door, she looked fantastic, it's all about looks. A beautiful face, a great body, nice smile, everything looked great until she turned around. And you're thinking, well, what happened when she turned around? Like, bald in the back of her head, she got no butt? I mean, what, what, what happened when she turned around? <laughs> the guy, completely serious, says this, and then I noticed her elbows. It's like, What? So they go through the entire date, but the very possibility of him having a relationship with her was just done because of her elbows. You know what we call that? It's called weenus. That's, it's called, that's, that's what it's called. And so it's like, he, this, so Tierney writes this. He goes, I thought my friend needed therapy. But then he goes, I realize this is an epidemic in our culture. Everybody is like this. We say, oh, well, they seem so intelligent until they pronounce the word genre wrong. Or they seem so great until all of a sudden I knew they voted for that person. And then it was just all over. Our perception and our vision in our lives gets distorted because we have it so good. Just like the Israelites. I think everything revolved around them. God gave them grace every day. And when we think we are God, we think everything must please us. And this is a symptom that goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. It goes back to this place called paradise. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Everything is good. Uh, not perfect, because perfect is static. It's good that the creation is going to grow and we get to grow with it. But there's no sadness, no sickness. We get to do anything we want, except God says, don't disobey me. Listen to me. Trust me. I know the best for your life. You can eat from any tree in this place, just not that one right there. And then into the garden comes a fiery serpent. He comes into the garden. The serpent says, that's not fair. God's a big meanie. How dare he tell you you can't have something? You need to determine what's right and wrong for yourself. You can't trust him. He's holding something back from you. And then the spiritual venom of the serpent starts to seep into their hearts and their souls. And then out of that comes this deep dissatisfaction with God himself. And all of a sudden, when that starts to happen, God's provision over them in the, in the garden wasn't good enough for them. This all-consuming discontent and thirst began. To relate it to the Numbers story, you know, the manna wasn't good enough for them. Well, really, paradise in itself wasn't good enough for any of us. 
And this is what the Bible teaches, that deep in the center of every human being, the center of every human soul, is a dissatisfaction that comes because of this thing called sin that we have been bitten by. It's like a, it's like a dislocated joint where it comes out. It's never right. Even when you pop it back in, it just always hurts just a little bit. There's damage. There's loss of function. So every human soul is separated from God because of our own sin and because of what we have done. And our hearts are not centered on God. And as a result, we have this infinite discontent where nothing in the end becomes good enough for us. This is why the author of Numbers 21 shows us what he shows us, that there is this correlation of what is happening in their bodies is what is actually also happening in their soul. Uh, Tim Keller writes about Numbers 21, and he says, The relatively curable and minor poison of the serpent in their bodies was an exact mirror image of the greater poison of the serpent in their souls. And I think all of us today, we have this unquenchable, all-consuming thirst that will eventually, if there isn't some supernatural intervention by God himself, we'll find ourselves in a place where nothing is ever good enough. It may be for a little bit, but then we get bored. And we'll find ourselves unhappy with everything, whether it's food from heaven or it's paradise itself. We have an infinite capacity for boredom with anything, even the best things. Now, I told you before that research shows that this is borne out in people. The more successful people tend to get, the faster they come to a place of dissatisfaction. Uh, this was the entire book of Ecclesiastes a couple years ago when we walked through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's that meaningless, meaningless, everything in the end is meaningless. And the more you have, the faster you get to that place. And I quoted you lots of people who had gone through this, but I found this other quote just a little bit ago by a guy named Boris Becker. Uh, you may not know who he is. Boris Becker was an old tennis champion. And he says when he was at the height of his fame, at the height of his money making, he wanted to kill himself because he got all of those things and he still wasn't fulfilled. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes says. But Boris Becker writes this, he said, I had won the Wimbledon twice. Once I was the youngest player ever to do so. I was rich, had all the material possessions I needed. I guess it's like the old song about movies and pop stars who want to commit suicide. They have everything and yet they're so unhappy. It's true. I had nothing on the inside. And this is why a lot of people always feel like they're discontent in everything. This is why people who are so excited to get married, they get married and a couple years later, oh, well, this isn't fulfilling me. Why? Because you're being God and you're trying to make the other person serve you. Some people never get married because no one's going to be good enough for them. And this is why sometimes also people uh, have a career and they want a better career or a better job thinking that's going to solve it. But it's never going to solve it because it's not about the job. It's about our hearts. And I'm not saying you can't get a better job. I'm not saying that at all. But when we are God, nothing raises up to our standards. Nothing. We have this standard that's so high that nobody can reach to. Now think about this. God has a standard. God's standard is perfection. Right? But what does God do? God sends Christ in our place and God places his righteousness upon us so we can be brought in. We would never be good enough for God, but God brings us in by his own grace to make us good enough because of what Christ did. But for all of us, we have to understand our condition first, that there is this deep dissatisfaction in our souls. There's something in us that is spiritually sick. It's why a lot of us hate the way we look and we're never going to like the way we look because there's a poison in us. We've been bitten. It's this raging fever that's going on inside of us. And in the book of Numbers, there's a correlation between what is happening in their souls and what's happening in their bodies. But what's happening in their bodies is nowhere near as serious as what's happening in their souls. So if I set that up for you, that's our condition. I said that in first service and nobody responded. It's like, okay, we're going to start over. They're like, no, 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 we got it. Okay. 
We're good. Okay. So where is your deep dissatisfaction? So how do we begin to recognize that? Well, I think there's a couple ways. There's more than the three I'm going to give you, but I want to give you three. Uh, The first one is this, trouble in our lives. I know we hate when hard things come to our lives, but one of the ways we recognize our condition is that trouble hits us and things fall apart. See, the principle with these people is they didn't see what was going on inside of them, what was wrong until they got sick. They didn't see what was killing them really until they started to die. It's kind of like cancer. A lot of times people have cancer and they never know. It just starts raging in their bodies and eating things up and they never know until you get sick. Most people who don't like Christianity, who want nothing to do with it, say, oh, it's for weak people. They say that because they think that they are strong. And I'll tell you, it's true. A lot of people who go to follow Christ, they do so when their lives fall apart, when trouble hits, when they actually recognize their condition. But think about that. When our life falls apart, does God go, oh, uh, now you need me? Yeah, I don't know about that. Now you want forgiveness and grace? No, God steps into those places. God meets us in those moments, just like he does for these Israelites when they realize their sin against God and Moses. I think almost all of our spiritual growth in our life happens because something comes in that causes trouble and causes things to melt down where we will go to the great physician. Trouble wakes us up. It's a good thing. I mean, some people have said about these verses, that it doesn't seem fair because they're literally dying. I mean, but, but if someone told you, I need you to teach an entire nation a deep spiritual lesson so they're not destroyed, how would you do it? How would you do it if not something like this? We have to understand that every human being on the planet has an expiration date. No one who ever died, died at the wrong date. Every one of us has our days numbered. Even non-Christians, some of them believe that. And if some people died from snake bites, their schedule didn't change. God is able to teach them while not being unfair to anybody because God can do that. What we need to understand is this trouble for them is something that woke them up. As I think if we look at it, it can wake us up as well. Now, the second thing that helps us to understand our condition is friendships. God intends for us to be in friendships with one another, but it's very hard because of our condition to have friendships in good repair. So we need to have friendships in good repair. In Numbers 21, verse 5, the people speak against Moses and all this. In verse 7, they go and they apologize. In verse 8, they're like, hey, can you pray for us? Can you you talk to God on our behalf? Because Moses was their leader, but he's also their friend. Uh, Tim Keller says this, you almost never have life-changing encounters with God without friends. Hopefully, if we meet God for the first time, we have friends around us who will talk with us and encourage us, and sometimes they'll argue with us, but we disciple one another. Friends are meant to support you and pray for you and build you up, but friendships are hard because we all have this condition. And that condition sometimes makes it hard in friendships. So we got to do a lot of repair, listening, working through things in those friendships. Because if we don't have that, there's not going to be one another to come alongside us to bring about the spiritual healing. D.A. Carson writes this about the church. He says, The reason there are so many exhortations in the New Testament for Christians to love other Christians is the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. See, those things are what other groups get together and center themselves around. Oh, we're all this political party. Oh, we all like this type of food. Oh, we all like this type of thing. And they get together around that. But that's not what brings Christians together. What brings Christians together is what Jesus did for us. And so we can have people who disagree on all these things, but we come together because we come together around Christ. So he goes on and says, Christians come together not because they form a natural co-location, but because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In this light, we should understand the church to be a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Now, when you look around at people you dislike, be like, oh, that's why. Okay, I love Jesus. 
You? I don't know, but I want to love him first anyway. When we keep our spiritual friendships repaired, those people are the ones who help us face anything. We're their Moses. They're our Moses. We go and apologize to them when we sin. They apologize to us, hopefully, when they sin against us. It's all coming around together. And when we have these friendships and good spiritual repair, we have the things we need to step into these places and realize our condition without being destroyed by it, and we can steer one another back to the life-changing message of who Christ is and what he has done. Now, the third thing that helps us to understand our condition is we stop blame shifting. Our culture is very good at blaming everybody else for our problems. Anybody agree with that? Now, I've been on the Twitter. I've seen it. It's always somebody else's fault. Well, we stop blame shifting in this. We realize, hey, I did sin. I was wrong. And when the gospel is centered to our lives, we understand our condition. We can say that we are wrong. And it doesn't destroy us because we know we are loved by him. They come to Moses and say, we have sinned against the Lord. They don't say, okay, look, uh, we sinned, but these snakes are ridiculous. Really? All he did was complain about the food, and now he's trying to kill us. What's up with that? There's, there's none of that. Because they know their problems. They know what's going on. They know it is self-induced. And spiritual healing starts when we stop blame-shifting, and really not until then. And so we must be a people who understand that trouble is so helpful. Friendships are helpful. This idea of stopping the blame-shift is helpful. Okay, so we recognize our condition. But now what? But now what? Well, this is kind of the craziest thing. Open your Bibles to John chapter 3. Fourth book, New Testament, John chapter 3. Now, I think, I think this is kind of crazy what God tells Moses to do, because it almost seems counterintuitive, right? Of all the things God could possibly tell him to bring about healing to these people, it's crazy. Create a huge image of the thing that's killing everybody, this bronze serpent, and stick it on a pole and tell people to look at that. How in the world is that helpful, to look at the thing that's killing you? Yeah, I know what it is. This is horrible. Why would I look at that? I mean, theologically, it's very hard to even think about that, because the serpent was a symbol of evil. Uh, the Israelites, Leviticus 11, they weren't, even, they weren't allowed to eat it. It's an unclean animal. So it makes no sense, really, unless you see what God is doing. God is bringing about a provision, and you have to trust him in that provision. And when you get to John chapter 3 in the New Testament, when Jesus comes, Jesus actually explains it for us. So in a retold narrative, Jesus retells this. So Jesus is talking to a guy named Nicodemus. He is talking about this concept of being born again. And if, you, if we go through this and you get lost in this, I actually did a whole series on the book of John on our website you can go and listen to. So I'm not going to explain it all, but I'm just, just going here. Uh, John chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If, you have, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. See how Jesus just explained that, God's provision and what it does? And then comes John's 3.16. I always call it the football verse because on the side of the football field, someone's always holding it up. You know, and it's the verse everybody knows. For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16 only makes sense in terms of the serpent in the wilderness on the pole. How is that for a retold narrative, right? 
In the middle of explaining who he is to the world, Jesus says, it's like the snake in the wilderness. What that was is what I am. How is Jesus like that? Well, what we are told is that Jesus on the cross, when he is put, he takes our sin upon himself. The provision for our condition, for our sin, is laid upon Christ himself. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How do we get perfection and righteousness? By what Jesus did. And when Paul says that, it doesn't mean that God made Jesus sinful. Until his last breath, Jesus prayed, you know, God forgive them. He's not sinful. He became sin. He legally takes on our condition, what had separated us from God on himself. In gospel terminology, Jesus got the poison, that venom. He experienced it so we could be healed. In Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament, it talks about the Messiah and it says, with his stripes we are healed. That he carried in his body our afflictions, our diseases, our infirmities. We are called to be a people who look to the sun. Like Moses lifted up the serpent in the Old Testament. This is the venom in your bodies. You look here, this is God's provision to rescue and save you. We look to the sun. It took me this long to get to that first song that we started with. See, I'm telling you. You got... The, when you talk about this, a lot of people come to this place and they ask this question. Well, why can't God just forgive? You know, why all this cross and death and dying and, and all this stuff? Well, the reason is what the reality of forgiveness actually is. Whenever someone wrongs or sins against someone else, there's always a loss and a cost. There is always a loss and a cost. If you have wronged somebody and sinned against somebody in a serious way, there's a loss and a cost. Either the wrongdoer pays it or the person who forgives pays that cost. Now, I've given you the illustration before. of I was out here in Albertson, Albertsons a couple years ago. I'm driving my truck, and I'm pulling in this lane, and this guy throws his car in reverse, and bam, just backs right into my bumper. Now, I've got a decent-sized truck, and i got a little ding in my bumper. kind of messed up his car. But he slams into parking. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'll pay you cash. Don't call the cops. I'm like, oh, you don't have insurance. Okay, see how this is going to go. Whatever. Don't be a jerk when someone does that. So, they, and he, so, so he's talking to me and begging me and stuff. And I don't, I don't care. It's a little ding. Have you seen my truck? Everybody hits my truck. I go to the Costco and like five people ram their carts into it for no reason whatsoever. Anyway, so, so I look at him and I say, you know what? It's okay. You can go. J- just look where you're going. But in that moment, either I have to say, oh, you're going to pay for this bumper, and that's a lot of chrome, and you know, that, that's a lot of money, so you're going to have to take care of that, and I make him pay for it, or in that moment, I say, I will take care of it, and I pay for it myself. Forgiveness, there is no costless forgiveness. There is always a cost, and either the person who does it bears the cost, or we, the person who forgives, bears the cost. And we have to understand that before God, we have no way to get our sins forgiven by paying for it ourselves, because we are so sinful and marred and messed up as it is. And so when God forgives us, he takes the perfectness of who Christ is. And he substitutes him in our place on the cross as the serpent was lifted up. So the Son of Man will be lifted up. And this is true even if it's not, say, a monetary type of forgiveness. If you gossip against somebody and you damage their reputation and you go to somebody and you say, Oh, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? There's only two things that can happen. Either they can say, No, I'm going to tell everybody what you did and I'm going to damage you so that my reputation is restored. Or they can say, Yes, I forgive you. In which case, they keep their mouth shut and they bear the damage themselves. No one just forgives. There is no such thing as a costless forgiveness. The forgiver always bears the cost. So how does God forgive? 
God bears the cost in himself in Jesus. He had to be lifted up to bear the fiery pain of our condition in our place. Our sin was laid upon Christ at the cross. And this is what he's telling Nicodemus. And so what do we do in this? Well, we look to the cross. Jesus says to Nicodemus, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And you have to see here that Jesus isn't just calling Nicodemus to get forgiven. He's calling him to be born again. Nicodemus thought that he was saved simply because he was part of the people of Israel. Like a lot of times you talk to Americans and they go, I'm an American, so I'm a Christian. Well, that's not how it works. Okay, It's not about birth. It's about new birth. What is God doing in us? The reason for the Numbers 21 reference is that we don't only need to be forgiven. We have to be repaired. We have this venom, this condition about us running through our veins. And it's not just that we're guilty, it's that we're, that we're damaged. And we must have new birth, not just to get the venom removed. We have to have our hearts and souls repaired by the grace and the goodness of God and what he does. This is the results of what the gospel brings in our lives. It brings healing. But the gospel itself is that Christ was lifted up in our place on the cross. We look to the cross just like in Numbers 21. They were to look at that snake. And you have to understand when we talk about looking, looking is totally different than doing. So many people today think about all the things that I do for God? How do I get God to love me? How do I get God to forgive me? i got to do all of these things. Well, in Numbers 21, how do they get the benefit of the snake? They look. They, is this on? They, they look. At, they look at the snake. Right? Moses doesn't go climb the pole, lick the snake. You know, he doesn't say any of that. He says, you look. You look at it. And, and to be born again, it doesn't come from planning. You know, none of us plan to be born. I mean, some of you are type A and you plan everything in your life. And they go, oh, I plan. no, you didn't plan to be born. It, it happened to you. you know, but we are not born through our own performance. We are not born through our own effort. We are born through the labor and love and pain of somebody else. And so many people think that following Jesus doesn't really have a lot to do with looking and trusting. It has everything to do with what I do to make God love me. Now, technically, we, when we love him, we will do certain things because we love him. But we are saved because we look to God's provision that he has made for us. I think there's, there's no better representation of this, I think, than uh, Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is one of my favorite preachers. Uh, he was the most prominent preacher in London in the 19th century. And he speaks about how he came to trust in Jesus with his life. Uh, he says he's looking around, trying to find all these ways to find God and take care of his own condition. In January of 1850, he was trying to get to another in a long line of churches to check things out. And there's a snowstorm. And the snowstorm forces him into this little alley. And so he ends up in this little Methodist church in the back of that alley and there's 12 people there because everybody's been snowed out including the preacher and so this guy is a shoemaker by trade and he gets the short straw and so this guy has to get up and preach imagine that one day at element right oh you so okay i don't know Uh, isaiah 55 uh, isaiah 45 verse 22 is what this guy reads as his text this is out of the king james because that's what they read at the time says this look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth for i am god and there is none else And so this shoemaker says, my friends, it's a simple text. All we need to do to be saved is to look, you know, God's provision over us. He says, and ain't lifting your foot or your finger, it's just look. You need to go to college to look. Even a child can look. You need to be worth a thousand pounds a year to look. A thousand pounds a year at that time was a lot of money. It's not like 1,400 bucks a year right now. So anyway, but he, he says, ah, but the text says, look unto me. To me, I now, many of you are looking to yourselves. It's no use looking there. The text says, look unto me. 
And Charles Spurgeon said this guy lifts his arms, he preaches for about 10 minutes and looks down, and Charles Spurgeon is the only new guy in the room. And so he focuses in on him and he says this, young man, you look miserable. That is never a way to greet people in the church, by the way. Just bad. Uh, you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death until you obey my text. Young man, look, look to Jesus Christ. You have nothing to do but look and live. And Charles Spurgeon says, this is when God got a hold of my heart. He totally changed me. He says, the blow struck home and I saw it at once. I had been waiting to do 50 things to find God. 50 things to fix my own condition. 50 things to get rid of my own venom in my heart and soul. He says, but when I heard that word, look, the cloud was finally gone. And listen to this. Like when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. And I looked and looked and looked until I almost could have looked my eyes away. What does he look to? God's provision for him. In the end, it's not about all the things he was trying to do. It's about what God did for him in Christ. As the serpent was lifted up, so the sun was lifted up in our place. That's where we look. And this is how faith works. See, faith isn't a belief in something that we muster up a lot of feelings for. Faith is essentially trust. Our trust gets transferred from ourselves, all the things we're doing, all the things we're building our life on, all the things we're building our own identity in, and we look to Christ and we live. That's faith. It's what God said to the Israelites. It's what Jesus says to Nicodemus. It's what Jesus says also to us. We come, we trust God's provision, and we get to live. And I don't know if you've looked around and felt this in your life and the world and the condition that we find ourselves in all the time where we are always just trying and trying and nothing is measuring up because we're never, ever satisfied. It's because we are not looking to Him. We are looking to us to try and fulfill all of those things, and we can never do that. What we need is to understand our condition, and that God has done something about it in Christ, so we trust Him with our lives. And all every week we come to this place called communion. And it's meant to be a reminder of what God has done. And this is why in communion, you, you have a, a cracker, you have some grape juice. Uh, we used to have wine, but COVID, you know, ruins everything. Um, <laughs> and, and you would break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. And you would drink or dip it in wine or grape juice as a reminder of his blood that was shed because this is the provision that God made lifted up. And we get to be a people who have all of our condition, the venom that runs through our veins. It is placed upon Christ himself. And we get new life as a result. We get to be restored into life with Christ and God himself again because of what God has done. And this is what I would like to invite you guys to today. This place of communion that, rem- that reminds us of this and God's goodness over us. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And if you are in a place today, maybe where you've been looking or trying to do 50 different things to figure out your own condition. And, and get out, maybe you're in a relationship that's fallen apart because you are trying to do everything yourself to fix it and, and make it better. What we need to do is look to the sun. And if you need prayer about that today, uh, you can stop by the Welcome Center back there and we will connect you with somebody to pray over this. Oh, you're so strong. <laughs> because we must be a people who understand God's provision over us, that, that He is good. Again, so often I think that we forget what our condition actually is. We just walk around through life with this, this low-level discontent in everything. And that is not how it has to be. It's not how it's supposed to be. We can be a people whose lives are found in God himself in a restored relationship and life, but it's not done by what we do. 
It's done by what he has done for us. And we look and we get to live God's provision, which is simply amazing. And if you would like someone to pray with you about that, we would love to do that today. Uh, There's offering boxes next to every door. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. We never pass a plate. It's a response to what God has done because we want God to work in us. And then that works out in what we do. Um, and I also encourage you, if you want to, grab some sermon notes or get the U version and kind of talk through some of those questions that are in there with one another this week. Especially right now, what's your greatest dissatisfaction? What is the dissatisfaction in your life right now that you keep coming back to, that you're just never content in the midst of it? And I'm not saying that, you know, as soon as you look to the sun that everything in your life just all of a sudden goes smoothly. Sometimes it gets much harder at that point. I mean, I think about in, in the wilderness and look on the, on the pole of the serpent that's set up. It doesn't tell you how fast the venom went, went away when, when they looked. I mean, they could have still had to gone through some pain as God works through some of that in them in this process that we call today called sanctification, where, where God moves us to places to trust Him more in our daily lives. But we look to Him because our salvation is found there. And everything in our lives changes because of what He has done. And then we start the process in our lives, walking with Him every day because He never leaves us and never forsakes us. But we walk that process every day in our lives with Him. Because he is our rescuer and savior. Uh, I'm going to ask Steve to come up and pray for us. Here's the thing. If you want a little more of this, we actually... You can come. You have to. <laughs> uh, we did a talking element, and Steve was our guest on it when we talked about this this week. And so I figured it'd be kind of cool as we you know, do the musical microphones that we could have Steve pray for us. Uh, because if you watch the talking element, he's in there too. So, Lord, we are so encouraged about the reminders today from your word. Boy, it's not fun to be reminded that uh, we have a condition, that we've been bitten by sin and discontent and sentenced to judgment. But it is so amazing to see that you, instead of charging us with our sin, end up taking it upon yourself, giving us not what we deserve, but Um, grace. You've made a way for us to be delivered. That is so amazing. Because of your mercy, your grace, you've solved our sin problem in a way that fully pays for our sin yourself without us having to pay for it. You lifted up the only sinless one ever on the cross, poured out on him what we deserve so that we could have what he deserves, a righteous and perfect standing before you. He who had no sin chose to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him and have that standing. That is amazing, amazing grace. Lord, help us all to stop our blame-shifting And to stop trying to fix our own sin problem on our own. Teach us to look away to your remedy. Away from our own works to the works of Jesus. Help us to see him as our sole remedy. Help us to see him lifted on the cross, taking our sin and our judgment on himself. Lord, we thank you for this privilege we have of worshiping together again. We just love it and miss it, and it's so good to be with your people who are also looking away from themselves and to Jesus, their remedy. In his name we pray, amen.